Hello, welcome to Creative Conversations, the Tiger Spirit podcast exploring and celebrating the creative process in life, the arts and business. I'm your host, Yang Mei Ui. I'm an author and podcaster. This is Season 3, Episode 1, CCV 0301. Today, my guest is award-winning writer, comedian and performer, Fran Bush, and we're talking about, well, talking about sex. Now, I spoke to Fran over the internet, so there's a bit of distortion every now and then, but hopefully that won't be too distracting for you. Also, there's a trigger warning for this episode. Fran and I talk frankly about sex and sexual activity, and we also refer to the male and female anatomy, including reference to genitalia. If you think you might find such content offensive, upsetting, or uncomfortable in any way, please do not listen any further and press stop now. For those of you who wish to continue, here's the show. Welcome to Creative Conversations, Fran Bush. Hi, hello. Hello. Um, now, you're a, a writer, comedian and performer. Um, and um, not many kids, when they're little, say to themselves, when I grow up, I'm going to be a stand-up comedian. Um, so how did you get started as a writer and comedian? Oh, entirely accidentally. Actually, I, um, I got dared to do stand-up by a friend. Uh, a friend who thought I was funny said that uh, in a year's time, I want you to have tried stand-up. Um, and I think I was at a place in my life, I think I'd just uh, been through a, a big breakup where I needed something to focus on and rechannel my energy. And um, I don't think she expected me to take it seriously. And it is now my career. <laughs> so it was a really good dare. And so can you remember what it was like you know, do, doing that for the first time and then kind of what prompted you to take it further? Yeah, I, I was very lucky to meet some incredibly talented people when I was first starting out. And um, I was absorbing inspiration from everywhere I went. But I think because, because it had never been a dream, I... I, I just felt a lot more organic as a process and I just managed to enjoy it a lot more. And I think when you're naturally enjoying things rather than it feeling like a pressured ambition, um, you end up learning more, I think, because you're, you're not limiting yourself so much. Um, and I loved it. I mean, I, I trained as an actor, so I was always, I've always enjoyed performing and being on stage and words, uh, but I didn't really see myself as funny necessarily. Um, so it came as a bit of a surprise to end up working in comedy. Um, and, but now I can't imagine working anywhere else. It's so nice. <laughs> 
That's fantastic. Um, so now your work includes the diary of my broken vagina, uh, which is based on your own diaries, and ad libido, which explores your own experience of female sexual dysfunction. Um, some people might say these are not very funny topics or even appropriate to talk about in public. Um, what prompted you to turn these experiences into comedy uh, and talk about them in such a public way? Yeah, I mean, every so often I'm like, oh, why didn't I just write a gritty crime thriller that everyone's grandparents could enjoy? Um, but actually, I mean, I, I didn't think anyone would be interested to begin with. I didn't think I had this idea of talking about sex and um, the fact that I wasn't really enjoying it, but I didn't think anyone would want to hear about it. I thought people would be... Uh, actively put off by the idea of a woman getting on stage and being like the thing about my vulva is or the thing about sex is or um I guess yeah I, I thought it would I thought it wouldn't be something that people would want to come and watch and I was so wrong um and I think it was something people really wanted to hear about and for the most part also they sort of felt like they needed to hear about it because no one was talking about it um for me i i've needed to laugh at it i've really needed to laugh at my experiences they are inherently funny like sex is mostly hilarious uh, mostly it's people thrashing about their limbs trying to connect with each other in the dark, sweaty, hairy, banging heads, trying to get underwear off. Um, sex is hilarious and the conversations we have about it, but because, because we're not always very good at talking about sex, comedy felt like a really safe space to have those conversations. And um, my work is always very accessible so it's not just a, a lone woman on stage screaming about her vagina it's uh upbeat music uh balloons party atmospheres it feels like a safe space for people to come and listen i guess and share so um when you first did your first uh gig about sex and your your personal difficulties with it what was that like was it, it must have been incredibly scary i'm going to do this and what's the audience going to how, how are they going to react <laughs> yeah it was terrifying i didn't tell my parents about it um because i knew i needed to have a a, a space where i felt completely safe they're incredibly supportive of my career i'm very fortunate but i knew i needed somewhere where i could just try talking about sex without worrying what other people were going to think having said that I do have a lot of ex-boyfriends that are intensely interested in my work that do tend to pop up at my gigs uh, very very frequently because they are convinced that the show is about them and that um that I'm talking about their penises live on stage uh which is funny because it couldn't be further from the truth and the show is about me and but that's also sort of beautiful because um 
that sort of echoes the themes of the show where I'm talking about how I want to make sex for me rather than about all of these men. Um, so the fact that they all think it's a biography of them is hilarious. Um, I remember after the first gig I did talking about it, uh, someone came up to me and said, it was like a soft penis to the heart. And that's been one of my favorite quotes. <laughs> but I think because, you know, sex is, uh, you know, we've all, we're all having sex or choosing not to have sex or have opinions about sex and experiences about sex. And it's so personal. And we are not encouraged to talk about it at all that I think it was quite exciting for the audience. I think they really enjoyed, and not just in a sort of hearing a kiss and tell way, actually having someone on stage say this thing that we're all meant to really love and be really good at, I struggle with, I think was quite, I mean, it was empowering for me, but I think an audience also really appreciated that vulnerability and that honesty. Um, and I would say that that's been a really consistent experience for me um, across all genders, because I think we are all told that we should be having loads of sex, really enjoying sex. We should be coming every single time. And when we're not, if we don't live up to the normal idea of sex, then we're often made to feel like we're failures and we're not. Yes. And I think it's the, the, the taboo nature of it makes it very, very difficult and, and brings shame into something that should be beautiful and lovely. So, you know, we all talk about, I don't know, um, uh, our, our, our sort of social problems or, you know, as, as parents or, or a mother, you might go, you might get advice from other mothers about how to bring up kids or, you know, um, uh, and we, we talk about all kinds of stuff and we share and learn from each other. But this one thing, this most beautiful, intimate thing, um, we're, we're too uh, uh, ashamed or, or, or scared to talk about. Um, so we get the information from films, from TV uh, or from porn for some people. And then, you know, oh, mine's not like that. I don't know how to do this. And, and in reality, you're fumbling around, you're, you get tangled up in your nickels and fall over or whatever it is. Um, and, and as you say, it's you know, hot and sweaty and whatever. Um, and it's not as beautiful and, uh, as, as it's on TV. So what am I doing wrong? And the, all those doubts, it's actually very, very un unhealthy. Um, something that is natural becomes something that is fraught with anxiety. But what you're doing oh. is bringing, out, bringing it out and making it safe for people to talk about it. I hope so. I've had um, people at the end of the show saying, oh, I'm just going to go and give my wife a call because I'd never even thought about whether or not she's enjoying sex. So I'm just going to go and give her a call um, and, and chat it out with her. I've had couples that have come and then afterwards said, um, we've actually just had the first honest conversation about sex that we've ever had. Uh, I did a Q and a after one of the shows and the, there was a couple and the man was saying, Oh, I think we don't need to stay for the Q and a, we should probably just get going. And his partner just very gently placed her hand on his knee and went, no, 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 
we are staying for the Q&A. We need to hear what she's going to say. And it's, um, I guess I just thought it was me that wasn't talking about these things. I guess I thought that everyone else knew how to have sex and was having great sex. But I think we all at some point, well, you know, well, sex isn't the same for all of our lifetime. Sex changes week on week. And actually, that's something I really struggle with because I'm trying to write about sex, but it depends who I'm sleeping with. It depends how that sex is going. And so my attitude to sex changes depending on, uh, yeah, what, what day of the week it is. Um, but that also makes it really exciting. And sometimes it means I have to go back and reevaluate my work because I started writing about it when I was 30 and I'm 33 now. And the way I feel about sex is completely different. Like I started off very angry. I started off angry at my body that it wasn't doing what it said on the tin, like it should be able to orgasm from the lightest breeze touching my shoulders. Um, it should be really easy for uh, a penis to get inside my vagina. That should be really easy because that's what you see on TV. They just fall into each other. Um, and so, yeah, I was absolutely furious. And now, several years later, several sexual experiences later, uh, ups and downs, and also dealing with fallout of, like, uh, uh, sort of being a sex educator now. So having to practice what I preach um, and... I guess there's something in, you know, when you say like ignorance is, is bliss sometimes, but now I know that I need to be honest in bed and I need to communicate in bed. So now I know those things. Sometimes having sex is actually even harder because I talk a really big game. I'm like saying to everyone, you need to do this. You need to be exploring yourself. We should be doing this. We should be having these conversations. Um, so then when I don't, I recognize that more in myself when I don't. But on the whole, now I am much gentler with myself and much better at having conversations with people about sex. And I also know that I can't control the way other people react. So I think in the past, if I had said to a partner, actually, that's painful, can we stop? I would be worrying about their reaction. I would be worrying about their orgasm. They, or they're not going to be satisfied. That means they might not fancy me anymore. My job is to keep them satisfied. Um, whereas now I know I can only look after my side of the experience really. So I, I can only look after how I react. So I would, I would say to them, you know, can we stop? Or, hey, how about we try this, this thing? And if they don't want to, then that's not on, that's not on me. I can't control that. But I wouldn't have been able to, I wouldn't have been able to speak confidently about that three years ago. 
Wow, I mean, there's quite a lot of big themes there. I mean, I think uh, lots of questions coming to my mind now. But so the first of all, I think it's the, there's the phrase making love to and making love with. And I think that when you make love to someone, there's a sense of I'm going to make a cake and it's going to be the best cake ever. And it's my creation. But when you make love with, it's the two people coming together and it's a union and it's a collaborative process and it's and it's um, something that you create together. You and open a bakery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good analogy. <laughs> um, and, and, and so I think that's what you're talking about, isn't it? Uh, and, and, and then this whole thing about taking responsibility for your own feelings um, and the sense that you can't read someone's mind and that actually having making love with someone um isn't about well, it is partly about their pleasure but it's also about yours and you're taking care of each other up to a point that you don't want to hurt someone but also equally you don't want to be hurt by them um, and there's not enough discussion or talk or understanding around that collaborative process and particularly i think as a woman what you're saying is that my pleasure is important too and and i and my experience of it is important too and what we sometimes get out in in, in you know, tv and drama uh, and so on it, that it's it's perhaps more focused on the male perspective um and it's not, not 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 about diminishing the man's experience but rather making that experience equal and what you're saying is good uh, it's empowering for women but also actually empowering for men yeah i think so i think it's um i mean communication is really sexy consent is really sexy all of these things if someone is saying yes to you and you know you can absolutely trust that yes that's really hot that's a really sexy thing um yeah i spent so many years at the periphery of my own sex life i was there to make sure they had a really good time um to sort of project manage their experience. I was curating a beautiful show for them. I was making all the right noises. I was bending and tossing my head and writhing in all the right ways. Um, and it was, it was for their, it was like uh, providing a visual feast for them essentially. Um, and I was really happy doing it because I was making sure they had a, good time and I really generally loved them and want that, wanted them to have a lovely time during sex but I made myself small I made myself tiny in the experience um, and it sort of closed a door in my brain and my body to experiencing any kind of pleasure at all because I was there to provide a service I was there to do maintenance works on the Railway. <laughs> I don't know why that's the analogy I've got in my mind. I'm there in a high-vis jacket, um, providing essential repair works. Um, but I, yeah, it is very much a, a process. And in some ways I feel like I shouldn't have started making work about it until I completely understood sex and I could go to people, hey, this is what we need to do. This is the answer. Uh, but also completely know that, that that's not what life's like. Um, and the last thing anyone needs is anyone telling them how to have sex or who to have sex with or why to have sex. 
so my work is very incomplete and always growing and changing um but even in the show that i do it doesn't it doesn't end with me learning to fix my broken vagina it doesn't end with me learning to fix sex but it does end with me thinking about prioritizing myself for the first time and kind of accepting that everyone's body is different and I'm just, so it sort of ends at the start, which is exciting. Mm, wonderful. And do you feel that having um, kind of broken through this taboo and expressed something that was hidden, um, uh, that's, um, you might say, well, okay, sex is in the bedroom or well, actually wherever you fancy you know, uh, making love, um, but sort of this this part of our lives that's that's kind of not public. Has that changed you in your the rest of your life and, and how you are as a woman and a person? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think I forget that not everyone talks as openly about sex as I do. I think I do forget that. Um, and sometimes I have to readjust in my head and go, oh no, oh no, it's not appropriate to talk about your vulva in this meeting. This is not a vagina meeting. Um, I think one thing that I'm always surprised by is how comfortable I am talking about these things on stage or, uh, you know, on, in interviews, uh, things that I write, but still the hardest place for me to talk about it is with a partner in the bedroom. That is still the place which is that should be the first place where I'm good at it. But that's still the place where I hold back or need a run up to saying the brave thing. Um, because I think there's still that feeling of uh, sex is so much bound up in like pride and emotions and fear of rejection and fear of being alone, like all of those things for so many years that's what sex symbolized to me that if I didn't provide the good sexual service I would be left or that I wouldn't be loved and so yeah I think I think I am more confident talking about these things publicly but still in an intimate environment there's a lot of work to be done I think that must be true for so many people. I think may I suspect that most people listening to this would be like, "Oh, oh that's me. How do I talk about this?" And and uh, and uh, and it must also, I hope, for people who are listening and for all your audiences who come to come to see your shows, um, that it must feel liberating to to realize, "Oh, I'm not the only one who finds this difficult." Oh God, yeah, it is. It's an incredible feeling because I really thought it was just me um i became sexually active at 16 and by sexually active i guess i mean started having penetrative sex um and so 16 till 30 is a really long time to feel like there's something wrong with your body and also like it's such a sex and habit such a strange territory because like i went to the doctors about not enjoying sex but you know I was sat in a waiting room with people that were very ill and I felt like I would be wasting the doctor's time I felt like I was going to be a burden on the NHS 
Uh, so by the time I got into the room with a doctor and was saying, actually, you know, I'm finding sex quite painful, I'd almost entirely talked my way out of it because I didn't, it didn't feel important. And again, my pleasure, my enjoyment of sex suddenly became really unimportant. Um, and the truth was that every time I went to the doctors, I was met with sort of apathy, um, like gentle apathy. I was told to uh, have a glass of wine to loosen myself up a bit or um, to pop some savlon on the problem area. And there was no, there was no feeling that what I was saying to them was serious or that actually even that it mattered. And so I think I've always had that in the back of my head as well, that it's not important. Um, I haven't got a broken leg. That would be a bad thing. My pleasure is not important. My pleasure is secondary. So yes, it's taken a, a long time to not, I mean, I think I probably do still have a lot of that in my head. But I, yeah, I, I'm trying, trying to not. <laughs> so, um, you you wrote in an article uh, about kind of uh, that that experience and then discovering that there was um, more to sex than the vagina. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I think so much of sex. We're told that it's put a penis in a vagina and that is sex, and that is such a small amount of sex, and that is for such a small amount of people. Really, it's such a narrow view, but it is the only kind of sex we are taught about at school. It's mostly the only kind of sex we'll see in films. It's mostly the only sex we'll see on television. Um, and yeah, I, I totally believe that like two pieces of a jigsaw, that's what sex was. Just pop it in, leave it in for five to 10 minutes and you've got a cake. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, uh, so I, I ended up going to a sex camp to try and put some concerted time and effort into reconnecting with and learning about my body. And the first thing I realized when I got there was that penetration was banned. And for 30 year old Fran, I was furious because I was there to fix sex. How was I gonna fix sex if I wasn't allowed to have sex? Um, but the attitude of everyone at the sex camp was that penetrative sex was really low in the pecking order. Um, I mean, these were people who were having orgasms without even touching each other. Like they were, they were coming from all kinds of activities, just from breathing, um, from like gentle scalp massage. They were so in touch sensually with their bodies that they could pretty much will themselves to orgasm without being touched at all. I was so jealous. Oh, oh wow. I was so, I was like, I want that. That is what I want. Um, and yeah, I, I only meant to stay for a week, but I ended up staying longer than a week. Um, I mean, it was a bit of a cult in some ways, but I really liked it. It was a great, what a lovely cult. Um, <laughs> it was all about slowing down and enjoying touch without it always being something that leads to penetrative sex without i mean like the the term foreplay in itself i don't think is helpful 
it is a term I use from time to time and then always have to check myself because for play makes it sound like the precursor. It makes it sound like the warm up. Whereas, and then that makes you feel like actually, unless we've achieved penetrative sex, this is an invalid sexual experience. And that meant that I'd always put penetrative sex on this like beautiful pedestal that was the thing I had to achieve. And even now, like, you know, as I said before, like I, I talk a big talk about all of these things. And even now in my head, there's always a tiny voice that's like, yeah, but it's penetrative sex, Fran. It's the sex, it's Mr. Sex. Haven't you met Mr. Sex? And there's still a tiny voice in my head that goes, unless you are accomplished at that kind of sex, then you're not, you're not experiencing the full range, but it's ridiculous because uh, a very tiny percentage of women experience orgasm from penetrative sex, unless there is additional clitoral stimulation in there. Um, but we're not, we're not told about this. Most women are left to discover that they have a clitoris on their own um, accidentally. It's not mentioned in any biology lessons. I didn't know that I had one until I was in a production of the Vagina Monologues and I had to go and look up what it meant. Um, and I didn't, wasn't sure where to find it. And I was, yeah, I was 21 by that point and I'd had a clitoris for 21 years. Sorry, I have to interrupt because I'm just laughing my head off. But I'm also thinking when I read the article and listening to you now, um, as, as a gay woman, uh, when I came out in my 20s, um, uh, it was it was never really about penetrative sex and so it's like you poor poor straight women it's true yeah it's true and I, I was i've been reading about the orgasm gap at the minute and i really want to get these statistics right but it's i think men in heterosexual relationships orgasm always or usually 95 percent of the time and women in heterosexual relationships, orgasm always or usually 65% of the time. So that's like a 30% gap um, that I've absolutely fallen down into. Um, and the statistics are just so much better for people, uh, for bisexuals and people in gay relationships. It's just like, it's ridiculous, the gap. And I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how other than keeping on talking about it and banging on about, I mean, not just the clitoris, like we have nipples. Um, yes. <laughs> they, I mean, and they're not there just to provide some kind of male fantasy. They are there to be enjoyed. But I just, yeah, I, I'd never paid them any attention before. Um, and not just your nipples, like, your wrists and your shoulders and your neck and your ears and your ankles and your mind like the mind is probably that's the thing that I need turning on first it all is all in my brain um like I very much need to feel relaxed and safe and um just good in my head if I'm in any way anxious or I'm still thinking about something from the day, then there's no way anything is ever going to happen and I'll end up faking an orgasm because I'll be like, oh, this isn't gonna happen today, but 
I want to give them a sense of achievement. Um, so yeah, it's, I think, you know, there's, there's a whole trope about women faking orgasms and aren't men doing sex badly, but I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think it's just been a really long time since people had honest conversations. Um, and people are, I think, well, I think I am certainly sometimes afraid to tell a man that actually your penis isn't the best thing to do the job. Um, I would much rather that he used his hands anytime. That's much more enjoyable for me. But sometimes when I've told men that in the past, it's been quite wounding for their egos. And, and that's understandable because that's the way we've learned. We've learned that penis is king <laughs> um, and we must all bow. <laughs> And I think what you said, the phrase just now, you said, you know, penetrative sex is, you know, Mr. Sex. Um, and there, even in that um, jokey phrase is is the, the, the issue um, around the non-collaborative nature of the way that society um, has us thinking about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, obviously, like at the moment, I'm not having any sex. Um, so it's given me a lot of time to really reflect on how I will go back into the world and the kind of sex I will ask for. Because like in everyday life normally, we're so busy and we're rushing around and, um, and dating in London is weird and hard and uh, you're wondering if you're gonna get your last tube home. And you know, there's lots of things going on. So, and sometimes you're like, actually, I need to get up really early tomorrow. So I can't have like loads of sex tonight. Uh, and half of your brain is thinking about if you go to sleep now, how many hours sleep are you going to have? But like now there's this, this period of time has been interesting because obviously I haven't been able to have any sex, but it has made me go, okay, when we are allowed to consummate our lusts again, um what do i want that to look like and i i think in reality you know I've, I've been having a lot of sex that i haven't always entirely wanted i've been having sex for a partner rather than for myself and so what would be ideal for me going forwards is to say actually i only want to be having sex that i am like a hundred percent ready for and committed not not like necessarily relationship committed to but in that moment it's it's actually what i want wow that's quite a simple but quite a powerful statement yeah it's it's bananas isn't it really because that should be the norm it yeah it sounds so basic um that i should only have sex with people i really want to have sex with like people that I'm entirely sure that if I say no or stop or how about we do this, they will respect that. Um, it feels like that should absolutely be starting block one on the board game of sex, but it's not at all, which is mad. 
Gosh, quite scary as well to think that you know that's not the norm for millions of well young women and young women growing up and and even I guess older women who've lived their lives in in, in that way. Um, so I'm I'm hoping very much that you know your listeners and your audience and our listeners here today are going to get something um, uh, to be inspired to to stand in their own or to lie in their own power. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I haven't got um, very many answers. But I, I think I am quite willing to ask a lot of questions and to say, hey, I really haven't got this figured out, but I would like to. <laughs> Which shouldn't be as revolutionary as it is, but it is. Yeah. Um, so a- apart from um, uh, sort of uh, uh, being a, 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 an unexpected sex educator um, and, and comedian and um, um, frank talker about um, body parts and things um uh, you're also uh, a, a comedian and a writer um so sort of moving on um uh, from from sex uh, what is your what is your writing process hmm my writing process well i'm i'm quite a messy human being um and i so i think my my process reflects that um i'm very much a have an idea idea will sit in the back of my mind i'll add to the idea as i'm walking around doing other bits um i have notebooks full of sentences of ideas a phone full of fragments of thoughts voice notes um and i will keep building an idea until it feels sort of like I've fleshed it out and then I'll get a massive sheet of paper, like A2, A2 paper, and I will build the world of what I'm trying to say on that piece of paper. Um, but there's no, there's no real one way. I think every project is different. Some things start because I've seen something on the news. Sometimes things ideas will come to me in conversations and I have to be very rude and be like I'm really sorry I just need to write down something because what you've just said has really made me think about this thing I'm just going to be two minutes but I can't lose this thought um yeah so I, I I would love to be the kind of writer that has a definite process of wake up at this time write for this amount of time um and maybe I maybe I will be at one point but at the minute it's very throw a lot of balls at a lot of coconuts and maybe you'll win a coconut. And do you have, <laughs> do you have this prop? I mean, or do your friends or partners um, kind of now feel a little bit anxious about talking to you or with, uh, and telling you their stories or kind of, or particularly with any new boyfriend sort of, Oh my God, I've got to be in your show. Yes, that's definitely. Uh, yes. Uh, mm, someone I dated several years ago I was terrified that he was going to be in my show and um it yeah I mean I'm, I'm talking about him right now um so maybe he was right to be but I think I'm always very careful in my work to protect people and shield people um partners have come or ex-partners have come to see the show and thought they've recognized themselves in it 
but they recognize themselves completely wrongly. And so, and, and then people who are maybe more visible in the show can't see themselves in it. There's a character in the show called Magic Penis, who is a friend. And um, when I told him I was going to fix sex, he was like, okay, yeah, I hear what you're saying. You're not enjoying sex, but you actually, you haven't had sex with me and you haven't tried this penis. I know that other penises aren't like, okay, but my penis is probably the one to do the trick. And so there's a whole song in the show called Magic Penis about this friend and it's, it's a fairly loving portrayal, but he can't recognize himself in it. So I think I'm very careful to, it's, it's art at the end of the day rather than documentary, I guess. So the, the people are, are changed and morphed and amalgamated. Um, friends aren't worried at all. Uh, in fact, quite the opposite. They're always like, you can have this. You, you take this one. I've got a funny, I get a lot of phone calls that I like. I've got a funny story about sex for you, Fran, um, which I'm always delighted to hear. Um, and so when you've got your script um, and how, how, do you, how do you prepare for a show? How, how do you kind of, is it already in the script or do you then develop it to, you know, to, for the costumes and the music and the songs? Um, um, I think every time is different um mostly uh you might work you'll work with a lot of different people so um i worked with a composer on ad libido uh and so i had sort of thoughts about what i wanted from the songs and uh half written lyrics and i would sort of bounce ideas off of him um and then he would go away and put music to those thoughts. And then we'd, we'd meet in the middle somewhere and work out how that would then become a song. Um, I worked with a choreographer to, we're trying to work out how you represent sex on stage. And we had loads of ideas that were like, oh, a mini trampoline or um, like a pogo stick, but actually dance came up as the thing. And I'm not, I love dance, but I'm not a very beautiful dancer, but I love dancing. And um, so trying to choreograph a sex dance from sex moves. Um, I mean, what, I don't know how this has ended up being my job. It's ridiculous, but I love it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I would say that the process on every project is, is different. Sometimes it will be just script work and then you'll hand it to a director and the director will just take it forwards. Uh, sometimes it will be little sharings. So you'll do get 10 minutes together, then you'll show that. Um, sort of stand up and comedy, it's more like refining short sections, then going out and trying five minutes, trying 10 minutes, trying 15 minutes of it. But yeah, I think you've got to be flexible. So what advice do you have for anyone wanting to try writing and performing um, comedy in particular? I think, I think most of us who want to do those things, uh, there are certain things that, that stop us. And sometimes that is a lack of time, um, feeling like we don't have enough time to commit to those things. Sometimes it's just 
being scared. Sometimes it's fear that we will fail at it. So why should we even bother? Um, and so I think it's approaching it in a, a manner that will feel fun, that won't feel scary. Um, now is a perfect time to be having a go at writing uh, and having a go at putting together a stand-up set because nowhere is open. You cannot go and do a stand-up set currently um, in public. You're not, there's, there's not going to be an audience there. So what a perfect time without fear, without worrying about the actual getting up on stage. What a lovely time to go, okay, what would I want to say? Um, I mean, I, I run several courses and I think courses are a really lovely way of getting your confidence in these things. But also I think the best thing about any of the courses that I run is the network those courses give you. And I don't mean network in a horrible chatting to people in a bar over a a cocktail and a cigarette I don't know what, what that but in my head that's the image everyone's in cocktail dresses networking um, I'm a terrible networker um, what I mean is just having the opportunity to talk to those people and talk through your ideas somewhere that is safe because the worst thing and the thing that does happen quite a lot is you'll share your idea with someone and that person might be like oh that isn't funny or that doesn't work but when you have a, like a tight-knit group of people who are all going through the same process, all have the same worries, all have the same doubts, but all love comedy or performing or writing, that's a really safe space to test and push and uh, pull on your ideas. And and I, like, sorry. And I, I would add, add to that because um, for, for the listeners, uh, I met Fran uh, on a stand-up comedy course uh, and she, she was my teacher. Um, and it was, uh, it, it was exactly as, as, as you described. We all started off, there were about 16 of us, um, all ter terrified and nervous and we didn't know each other. Um, but what you did was create a safe space for us to experiment and you encouraged us to push the envelope and keep pushing it. And I remember one class, and, and you, you gripped, um, you managed it in such a way that um, only by about midway through did you start to kind of really push us and say, well, if that's your, you know, comedy, then go louder, go bigger, go crazier. Um, and by that time, we developed this bond and we were really supportive of each other. And when we realised, well, when I realised everybody else was just as scared, um, that was fine. It gave me permission to be silly. And we did these warm up games. Um, and, and the more... I could see my colleagues being ridiculous and crazy. The more it made me do that, the more I did that, the more they did it. I mean, not that, you know, sort of we each did that for each other. Um, and how you encouraged us to, to develop things that we felt passionate about, um, which was, um, again, um, fun, exciting and, and scary. So it was such a shame that we couldn't do the final show because everything got shut down. Um, and so a part of me was like, oh, phew, I don't have to do that. But a part of me was like, oh, my God, that was such a shame. Yeah, we, we will, I reckon. Well, it will happen at some point. We'll get it back on stage. But I think that it's really important. Like I've been a student in classes where um, you put forward work to share with the group and people like rip it to shreds. And sometimes that's the difference between someone sticking at comedy and not sticking at comedy. And I don't think it's useful. I don't, 
I love constructive criticism. I think it's important. I think we need to be pushed and we need to know when things aren't working. But I think sometimes you just need like one person to say that you're doing okay at something to make all the difference. Um, I remember for me, there was, uh, I started doing a comedy course at Soho Theatre and actually I now teach the course, but I started as a student on it. Um, and it was one of the teachers there. Uh, I'd submitted a comedy song and it was just him coming up to me afterwards and saying, I, you know what, that's a really good song. Keep working on it. There's something in that. And just hearing that, like I now I write comedy songs all the time and I, he didn't, he didn't need to say that, but there's something in creating a supportive environment that actually, if he came to me the next week and said, oh, that line isn't working. Have you thought about trying it at this pace or with these instruments? I would be so receptive to. So I think it's about finding the things like it. It's not, it's, everyone is naturally funny and you have to just, lots of people don't realize what their natural funny thing is. And they'll be like, I want to be like this comedian or this comedian. And they'll try to be that person and that's fine. But what's more interesting and exciting and honest to me is finding the thing in someone that is their natural funny, the thing that crackles through them that will make people in the pub laugh, that will be the thing that other people will remember about them. Um, just finding that and getting them to tune in on what that is, I think is really, really exciting. So just to hop back and make a link with, with um, our earlier discussion about um, sex and telling people about giving feedback. So you talked about the, your teacher who came and said, oh, that song that you did was you know, lovely um, and keep doing more of it. So do you, do you have conversations with your partners after, outside the event, um, you know, after, after maybe over breakfast? And you, you know that lovely thing that you did with my bit over there? That was so lovely. <laughs> keep doing does that happen I, d I definitely try to yeah I definitely try to um gosh it feels god it feels like such a long time since I've had any sex <laughs> but um yes I think I I'm probably much better at giving feedback afterwards than in the moment um and uh, but I'm I'm probably much better at giving positive feedback than negative feedback I wonder if there's a way of framing negative feedback as positive feedback. Oh my goodness. Maybe I just need to apply what I do in all other areas of my life to my sex life. There you go. I just need to teach them. I, we can, I'll do a warm up game with them. It will be fine. We'll play zip zap boing. I'm going to have so many offers of sex after this podcast. It's it, flooded in, always ridiculous um yeah i but i'm also i think i mean i'm getting a lot more confident about what i like with myself um and i find it quite sexy telling people what i enjoy doing to myself and i think that if they know how i enjoy myself 
it will give them a better idea of how they might help me enjoy myself or um yeah how that might work we'll see i'm very excited to get um out of lockdown and put all of these things into action my my action plan <laughs> with a capital a <laughs> I'll make a whole second show about it. Well, maybe after, in, in a few months, you can come back and tell us the results of your action plan. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Sorry, we got diverted again. No, I, just, I, that, I mean, that would probably just, I'll be sitting in just a stunned silence, probably, when I was like, oh my goodness. I'm very tired. <laughs> it's been really busy times. Right, going back, going back to comedy, yes. um, we've had lots of advice about, not advice, but sort of thoughts and, and, and ideas about um, uh, sex and, and, and so on. But now, so do you have any specific advice for women who want to try stand-up? Um, I don't know if I have specific advice, but I guess what I would say is that I understand why it can feel daunting. Um, when I first started doing gigs, it very much did feel like an all boys club. Um, and there were sexist jokes being flung around every which way that weren't getting called out by anyone. Um, and you would still be introduced as a woman, your gender would, as the compare would introduce you with something that would make it clear that the audience knew they were getting a female comedian. Um, and also there were certain gigs that took place in, um, in pubs or bars that didn't always feel safe. They sometimes, they happen late at night and sometimes if you are uh, near the top of the bill, you're leaving really late. Um, and there is definitely, uh, there are definitely dangers that come with that and there shouldn't be and it shouldn't be any different um but I've definitely had people wait around for me after a gig um and want to walk me to the tube station people that have seen you on stage that feel like they then know you um and feel like they've spent time with you whereas they sort of have but in reality, you haven't seen them. They've been in the darkness and that's, you've never seen their face before. Um, I think these things are changing. I think that it is becoming a safer environment. Um, I think, so during Edinburgh last year, there was a whole scheme to help so if you had a late night gig, you could, I think, send a text and someone would come and walk with you. Like there was like a, a buddy group system for women. Um, so there, there are, it really, really used to not be a safe place. I think things are definitely changing, but there are still a lot of things that need to change. Um, but it would just be looking for those gigs that are safe and there are plenty of them there are so many that are lovely and warm and supportive but other than those really <laughs> boring elements of 
things that we just should not have to worry about all of that stuff um i just you just have to give it a go and there are you will you'll always get in a class a guy who is really really loud and thinks that they are hilarious and will talk over people and that is fine because by week three we'll have found the thing that is really really funny about that person and they will have gone on a journey and they will have learned something and they won't be going to their default sexist jokes um Yeah, just. I think that was yeah. one of the elements of the class that I really appreciated. That um, some people might have made sexist or racist jokes, not intentionally, but just because of their background, they haven't been called out on it, or their environment where they come from, um, that's been okay. Um, and it's no criticism on on them, but rather then the class would just kind of go, oh, they they call that person out, um, and 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 you would talk about punching up and punching down. Um, and it would, if you could just explain that a little bit, um, uh, but, but it just helped us understand the nature of comedy and what's okay to laugh at and what's not okay. Yeah, definitely. And it's, it's really interesting, this, I think, in terms of people are always saying, oh, you know, we're not allowed to make jokes about this anymore and um, things have gone too far. But you can feel it in a room if someone has made a joke that doesn't sit right. and. Um, I, I guess for me, you know, in some of the courses I've been teaching at the moment, people have asked, are we allowed to make jokes about coronavirus? And I have said that I think like as long as the joke's heart is in the right place, as long as we are punching up, so punching up at people that have more status and power that have less to lose by being made the butt of a joke um as long as we're not punching down at people that are vulnerable or weak um then then let's try it and a, a course is a really good place to try those jokes and we I, I the thing about my career is i'm always very cautious i always want to make jokes that in 10 years time i will look back on and go oh that that's okay that's that's still fine but we can't we can't always know because things do change and with the way we talk about things changes and language changes. And I think as long as we are okay to put our hands up and go, Oh, actually that wasn't okay. That isn't okay. Then, and we, we address it with kindness. We address things with kindness always. Then they're really important conversations to have. For example, like the one thing I am terrified of at the minute, is that the government is not going to be held to account for a lot of the things that are happening now. That is one of the things that absolutely really scares me. And I think humour and comedy is one of the only spaces where we are allowed to just slightly push back, not loads, but we can go, actually, that thing that they said in the briefing today, that doesn't feel right. Why aren't we being told these things? What's happening with this? Who's even in charge? Like all those things. It just gives people a space to express those things and make other people who then watch those uh, those jokes or, or however they're putting out their comedy 
go, oh, I think that too. Actually, yeah, I was questioning the government in this way. And um, yeah, it's, it's such an important conversation to be having. And I don't think people have it enough in, um, in the sketch comedy class that I teach at the beginning we try to work out, we try and set ourselves some rules. And some people think comedy doesn't need rules. But um, a friend of mine once said that you should, you can offend everyone. Offend everyone, fine. If you're a comedian, upset everyone. But you should never just offend one person or one group of people in that audience. Like you can turn them all against you. But I, I mean, I hope, I hope that we are moving towards a, a kinder kind of comedy. Um, I'm not interested in the other kind. I don't, I don't find it funny. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't want to be in a room as an audience member even and feel unsafe ever. Yeah. I think traditionally the court jester is the one person in the court that could poke fun at the king um, and that was his role and whatever he said it was punching up at the king and so I think that's what you're saying in terms of laughing and joking um, and satire against uh, against the government and it's been quite interesting to see um, all the, um, the, the the satires that have come out of um, the last um, briefing whereas I think uh, somebody did a, a video parody of, of, of Johnson's speech. Um, was, was he one of the chaps from Little Britain or something? I can't quite remember. Um, and so there's a lot of that stuff coming out and in a way I suppose humour is, is a way of, of, of saying what cannot be said uh, uh, and, and poking fun at the king as it were but also it's, is, is, it's a way of expressing anxieties um, in the way that your comedy deals with the anxieties around sex. So comedy around COVID uh, and, and the lockdown um, can be helpful, do you think, in terms of expressing the anxieties that we're all feeling? Yeah, I think so. And the truth is things are changing week on week so much that it's, it's difficult to establish those rules. Like I'm thinking about the course that you were on in the last week, two weeks of it, um, people were starting to get very worried. And the making, making jokes about it did make some people feel uncomfortable. And I think you just have to take it on a case by case basis. Um, that if someone is doing jokes that will make, that they know will make people feel very uncomfortable, then that is not a useful thing. Um, but I think if we are poking fun at ourselves, um, look, I'm very happy to poke fun of, at how I'm dealing with lockdown um, and the ridiculous things that I do. I'm very happy to poke fun at the people in power that I feel are really missing the mark quite a lot of the time at the minute. Um, because I think people need to be questioned. I, th I mean, I'm not saying it's a parallel of, you know, the bit after the briefing where all the, the journalists get to ask questions. I, I'm not putting the role of the comedian quite there, but it is the same function. It is the same 
I feel like you have to be allowed to say, look, this person, this thing, is this okay? Is, is this okay? Um, and as long as the joke is never at the expense of the people who are suffering, uh, you know, the, the people, the vast amounts of people that will have lost someone, like as long as the joke is holding the people in charge accountable, that they have to be accountable, then I think it's important. Thank you. Um, so Fran Bush, we've uh, actually run to an hour, which is fascinating. And I'm sure we, you know, the, everything you've been talking about is fascinating and we could go on for, for hours more, but I think I need to, to wrap it up. I mean, is there any, uh, uh, do you have any last words that you'd like to share with our listeners? Uh, lubricant is <laughs> your friend, <laughs> but find one that you like. Not all lubricants are born equal. Um, and there are all kinds of lubricant for every activity under the sun. Fantastic. That's exactly the kind of uh, last words you wanted, right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> very, very wise. Very important. Um, uh, and I mean, I'm a cyclist, so chafing is an issue. So, uh. <laughs> um, where where can listeners go if they want to find out more about you and your work? Um, on the social medias, I am at Fran Bush. My bush has an E on the end of it, um, B-U-S-H-E. Uh, the Diary of My Broken Vagina is available on all four and YouTube. Um, yes, those are my outlets. <laughs> Thank you very much, Fran Bush. My creative conversation today was with Fran Bush. There are photos and links to some of the things we talked about on the show notes page. You can use the bit.ly short link, which is bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash creative conversations hyphen podcast. Or you can go to tigerspirit.co.uk forward slash blog and search for CCV 0301, Fran Bush with an E and talking about sex. I'm excited to announce that the Creative Conversations podcast is now available on Spotify. Just search my name, Yang Mei Ui, and if you need help with the spelling, it's Yang Mei, Y-A-N-G hyphen M-A-Y, and the surname Ui, O-O-I, and the podcast should come up on Spotify. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Creative Conversations podcast, please do share it with your friends wherever you share stuff. Or you can subscribe to the show or leave us a lovely review on anchor.fm, iTunes, Stitcher, and of course, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All this will help more people hear about the show. The Creative Conversations podcast is produced by tigerspirit.co.uk. The podcast web link again is bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash creative conversations hyphen podcast. I'm Yang Mei Ui. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as at Tiger Spirit UK. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Mm-hmm.